How delightful it is to come together this evening. The singing that we have here at Pippin is so beautiful and uplifting. We always enjoy the opportunity and the parts that we sing together. The words of those songs are so uplifting. Isn't it grand to be able to come together and enjoy singing like we have here? The opportunity to lift our voices the way we do. As we also have opportunity to open the Word of God and turn our attention to it, Always so very thankful for the prayers that you utter on my behalf. And I know every man that stands in this pulpit would feel exactly the same. We covet your prayers. We ask that you keep us in prayer so that the words that we speak will always be true to that which is God's revelation and that it will be the thing most needful to help us as individuals to draw closer and nearer to the things that God would have us to be. The reasonableness of faith. I chose that as the title for the lesson this evening, and I suppose we will really be looking in detail at various perspectives relating to that. But I hope that it will be a particular topic and subject that can be of great helpfulness. You and I are facing, of course, in a continual fashion, a tremendous foe and a tremendous battle that's being fought against us. You can probably imagine some of the initial comments easily could be expressed in a way like this. Paul said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6 verse 12. The particular battle that you and I are fighting each day is one that has your faith and mine in its crosshairs. The devil, in fact, desires to crush or at least call into question the integrity of your faith and mine. He does not want us to walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. He wants us to rely upon that which we see and that which is the proclamations of the human family. Your faith and mine then is a battleground in the sense that the devil wants to crush it. Jesus wants to encourage it. The devil wants to in fact quash it and yet the matters of the truth contained in the Bible is there for its edification and its benefit. One of the greatest tactics, it seems, in recent years that the devil has chosen to utilize is to call the reasonability of faith in question. Now, I suspect that has been true many times throughout the centuries, but with the technology we now have, it seems just as soon as anybody delivers a speech anywhere that in any way calls God into question, we all know about it. We hear the words that he or she may speak, And with those words, suddenly there are those who will give a hearty message of exhortation to that. Tonight, what about the reasonability of faith? I noted a moment ago from some of the statements that we have made. And we shall look at many tonight. So if you'd like to take notes, or as always, if you'd like to have a particular copy of it, just ask one of our deacons. Be happy to make any copies and give it to you on a CD version. The reasonability of faith. Maybe this next slide, as we develop the thought initially in the following ways, I'd like to share with you a quotation. You'll notice that Satan has convinced many that it just isn't reasonable to have faith. He's convinced many that the very aspects of it are not in line with the reason and the capability of logic and deduction. Let me quote. I'll tell you who said this after I read the quote. Before we understand science, it is natural to believe that God created the universe. 
But now science offers a more convincing explanation. What I meant by we would know the mind of God is we would know everything that God would know if there were a God, which there isn't. I'm an atheist. Now the gentleman who spoke those words stated that before science entered the picture, one might have been tempted to believe in in a God. One might have thought that there was a God, but now science offers all the explanations, he says, And as such, we no longer need a God to explain things. And therefore, he said, you'll note again the phrase, we would know everything that God would know if there were a God. This gentleman has reached the conclusion there's not a God. He even admitted, I'm an atheist. The person who spoke that is probably the most famous physicist currently in the world, Stephen Hawking. It seems every time he has anything to say, it is immediately broadcast worldwide. He's that British physicist that is bound to a wheelchair. He is ALS in various forms, in fact, rather advanced. But he is able by the twitch of his face, and it can interpret that which he intends to say, and thus he has a speech synthesizer. Everything he ever says, it seems like that he's, it's lifted up immediately for all the world to encourage his brilliance. How smart he is. I'd say to you, what about the reasonability of faith? As you can see on that slide before you, whether it be the arguments of science, whether it be the arguments of philosophy, whether it be various and sundry considerations touching the very matters of intimidation, all of it seems to be waging war against your faith and mine. And may I say to you, in many ways and in many textbooks, it's winning. Sometime open one of your children's textbooks. If you have a child at least, say, in third or fourth grade, look at what it says biologically. Look at what it says from the perspective of physics or geology. Look at how old it says the earth is. Look at what it describes about the development of the human family. Look at what it teaches about the solar system. You can begin to see what our children are facing and what even you and I as older ones also continue to face. In other words, Satan would have many in this world to believe it's not reasonable to believe in this book. It is an old-fashioned, antiquated, outdated book and long ago needed to be jettisoned and abandoned in favor of what's modern and up-to-date and new. And that's the way the science books present it. The reasonability of faith, though, is much deeper than that. It is a topic and a subject I would invite us to devote the next few moments to considering. May we say at this very moment, it is entirely reasonable to believe. Don't let Stephen Hawking crush your faith. Don't let others like him lead you to believe what is not true. This next slide is one that's very strong and very powerful. I'll use it in conjunction with some of the following ideas. Though it appears on that slide, you can easily appreciate that God wishes for you and for me to utilize the ability He has given us to observe, to think, to conclude, to evaluate, to draw proper judgments. God invites it. The truth has nothing of which it should be afraid And therefore God says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. God doesn't want you and me to put a boundary, if you please, a wall between our faith and scientific endeavor. 
He invites us to consider, and He invites us to do so under the very banner of what He has created about us. You'll notice near the top of that slide, we might revisit the days of Daniel chapter 4 for just a moment. In the fourth chapter of that book of Daniel, there was a scene that developed in a way like this. You remember what happened to that king. That king, of course, found himself, Nebuchadnezzar that is, he found himself for a period of time living like a beast of the field. You might recall what was it that was taken from him. Now you and I quickly remember that his fingernails grew, perhaps with the appearance of even claw-like structures. The very hairs on his face and body grew, but there was something else the Scripture spoke twice. Something departed from him that distinguished the capability that God had given him. And the Bible says it was reason. While he lived like an animal, he lost the capability of deduction and evaluation and logic and reason. And after that episode was ended, he thanked the God of heaven that his reason had returned. The capability to reason, God wants us to use it. And he wants us to employ it and all the faculties that come with it in a way to pursue that which is just and true. Surely in light of those things, you and I know that some people choose to use their reason and their deduction and fly in the face of what the Bible says. And then there are those like you and me who are fully convinced that our capability of reason, not clouded by scientific misinformation, we are those who do rest fully and squarely upon the reasonability that God has given us. Tonight we'll, at least for a few moments, cast a spotlight upon that very concept and idea. As we do that, why don't we come to the bottom of this slide. Were you aware that it may well be the book of Job may well be the oldest book in all the Bible? It certainly is on par with the book of Genesis. And yet, despite the great age of that book of Job, you and I encounter something that is breathtaking as we arrive at chapter 38. You remember through the first 37 chapters of that book, there was Job and there were his three friends who offered very little comfort to him on the whole, This man was suffering mightily. As all that happened, he had various questions about the nature of why it was happening to him. He never doubted God's existence now. But he did wonder why God allowed this to happen to him the way it did. What's so fascinating is, all through the presentation of that notice, God never told Job what had brought it all about. There had been this initial conversation between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And all the while, Satan had accused God, you take such good care of him, no wonder he trusts in you. God says, okay, you can take his possessions and you can even impact his physical body, but you can't kill him. Satan took him up on it. And you remember what transpired. Job found himself in such dire conditions. And yet he never was told why. You might appreciate that if he'd been told why, maybe his motivation, maybe his incentive could have been offered as reason for that, but God never told him. First thing God says to him in Job 38, after those questions and after the considerations, God then proceeded to say to Job, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
Job, where were you when the morning stars sang together? Job, where were you when the springs of the sea brought forth? Job, you see Leviathan over there? I made him. Can you make one like him? Job, where were you when the various and sundry elements bring forth by way of procreation? Do you know when and how they do it? Job, where were you when the various recesses of the universe and all the things with the Pleiades and the stars were fashioned? I made them. Won't you try it? One by one, Job was left speechless. He had nothing to say and neither would any of us. You'll notice that God offered some thoughts and some powerful matters touching our subject tonight. Nothing that has design in it happens by accident. Whether it be the human body, whether it be the universe, whether it be the features that you and I observe about us, that which is designed requires a designer. It's just that simple. Every house is builded by some man. Hebrews 3 verses 5 and 6. But he that built all things is God. In essence, God built that thought in the mind of Job. Job, all these things you see about you, they didn't just happen. Where did they come from? Job had not the slightest answer. Isn't it still amazing today that there are those in scientific realms who, like Stephen Hawking, say science has all the answers? I can't help but blush and laugh. Science has seemingly always felt that way. Were you aware, though, that many times in history the theories and the presentations of science have, after later investigation and later experimentation, have been found to be exactly and completely erroneous? Think about the nature of heat for just a moment. You and I today know the laws of thermodynamics rather well. Turn back the clock. Well over 175 years now. At that point in history, there were still many considerations touching the subject of heat. They didn't know what it was. One of the most prominent theories scientifically at that time was the so-called caloric theory. They thought that heat was a fluid existing within bodies. You and I today might be tempted to laugh at that, but the most respected scientists of the day felt that way. Now we know that's not true. I wonder another 200 years if God allows this world and universe to stay in. How many theories today, astrophysical or otherwise, at that time will be looked back on and laughter will develop? Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps, Jeremiah 10, 23. Maybe you could see near the bottom of that slide, that element and that attribute in the conversation with Job is only one instance. Romans 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When you and I look about us and see the characteristics of nature, the characteristics of the various and sundry disciplines of science, those who have a capability of reason should quickly conclude, some designer fashioned this. I always find it remarkable. Perhaps you're aware of computer programming. If Adam were with us tonight, he could speak much about the nature of that. He's so skilled at it, and perhaps many others here too have at least dabbled in it in some way. To be able to program a computer to carry out a particular task and chore and to do it faithfully and to do it correctly. 
a computer has to be programmed. As much capability and as much potential is within it, someone has to tell it what to do. Isn't it remarkable? This universe has in it features that remind us about the nature of feedback systems and computers. Look at the bottom of this slide, Psalm 14.1 then. In light of verses and concepts and appreciations like this, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible said that. Psalm 14.1, we're quoted again in Psalm 53 verse 1. To look upon this universe, the notion of the handiwork that goes into it, the features that describe it, the feedback systems that keep it stable. The fool has to look at that and say there's no God. I use that term the same way the Bible writers do. When you and I appreciate the word fool in cases like that, has mindset to those who look at evidence and reject it. Those who look at evidences and appreciations and witnessing matters and nonetheless deny it. That's what it takes to say there is no God. When you and I give thought then to the house, or rather the one that built all things, namely God, maybe it leads us even further to consider some additional matters. As we turn the slide to the next page, might I ask you then to notice, and we highlighted briefly earlier, God urges us, in fact, He invites us, to utilize those powers of reason and by them to, of course, reach the correct deductions and the proper conclusions. Brother Joel read earlier from Isaiah 1, verse number 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. That's such a sweet invitation, isn't it? God does not wish you and me to then ignore scientific evidence. He invites us to put His will to scientific consideration, experimentation. Some of the finest and most notable scientists in history have been devout Bible believers. How about Isaac Newton? In fact, there was a sense in which he was a preacher. And yet, he set before us the thought of not only the universal law of gravitation, not only three laws of motion, not only co-inventor of the calculus. He also developed seminal considerations of optics, Considerations that touched many other arenas in science. And yet he saw his endeavors in producing and pursuing the matter of science as a way to learn the features of God's creation. Isn't that beautiful? Many other scientists might be listed. Robert Boyle. Those who study biology and microbiology know a great deal about the efforts of Boyle. Chemically as well, the famous Boyle's Law. Johann Kepler a famous astronomer long before our modern era, but nonetheless who painstakingly over two decades developed to this day three well-known laws of the solar system that we require our students in high school and college to learn a devout Bible believer. Now that list of three could be greatly extended, but the point is there were individuals then who felt that it was entirely reasonable to believe and today, though we don't hear as much about them, there are still physicists and chemists and biologists and there are others who think it's entirely reasonable to believe. I trust that we won't always be shaded be, then by the statements of those who do not think it's reasonable, unfortunately, like Stephen Hawking. 
because you and I know far better. You'll notice with me at the top of this slide, God not only stated that kind of statement to Isaiah, and not only ushered it to the people of His day, even in Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 and continuing many verses thereafter, God, in fact, portrays a court scene. Picture it with me if you would. Here's God as the prosecuting attorney. And here are the various people with whatever lawyer they might pick. And God simply asks for a fair and open consideration. He says, I'll present my evidence, you present the best you can, and you make your own decision. God simply presents to us the marvelous wonder of what He's done. And He says, is it reasonable to believe that I made this or that it just happened? Is it reasonable to believe that I, as a grand and marvelous intelligence, made this? Or is it more reasonable to believe I didn't make it? May I say to you that it takes far more, quote, faith, unquote, to believe in the Big Bang or anything else along that line than to believe the God of heaven fashioned it. For you and I know that explosions do not make order. When's the last time any set of engineers ever built a building by blowing up dynamite beneath lumber? It doesn't work that way. Dynamite destroys and explosions do the same. It takes intelligence to order it. It takes, in fact, the powerful mind of one greater than it to put it into structure. One does not, by way of explosion, make anything profitable. Many years ago, another scientist, in fact, asked a question like that. He said it would be as likely, in fact, even worse so to believe, that this universe or anything like it came into being. He said, if you're willing to believe that, then why are you not willing to believe that a tornado could sweep through a junkyard and build a Boeing 747? You and I know such a thing is preposterous. And yet we are told that it supposedly is the reasonable thing to do. I believe you and I would beg to differ. You might appreciate it is reasonable to believe, to have faith, to appreciate that these things that we see about us are a testimony to that marvelous mind that fashioned it all. I would ask you to notice then as you come with me to the bottom of this slide that this same concept, as powerful and as thorough as it is, it also has implications for spirituality, doesn't it? Oh, definitely it does. In fact, that's quite often the approach the Bible writers used. Let's develop that briefly in the following way. In other words, if one looks about you and sees then that the things of nature and the things of this universe are described correctly and truly by the things of the Bible, then should it not follow that one could also have tremendous confidence in these spiritual declarations of Scripture? If the Bible writers could correctly speak on scientific matters hundreds of years, sometimes even thousands of years before scientists discovered it, and the Bible writers turned out to be correct, then does it not follow then that when they speak of scientific things, or rather of religious things, that they also are absolutely correct? Surely, you and I might notice that's the way that Jesus encouraged us to appreciate it. Look with me at the following. In Matthew 11, verses 1 and following, there was a scene in an instance in which John the Baptist himself 
was imprisoned. You may remember Jesus sent two disciples to go to him and ask him a very pertinent question. The question that in fact John the Baptist sent with respect to Jesus. Are you the one that should come or do we look for another? Jesus sent back to John those two and said, You tell him and you ask him about the following ideas. The lame are made to walk. The blind are made to see. The various and sundry other physical maladies which you've seen me heal. What does your reason and what does your consideration lead you to conclude? Must I then be the one that you have heard of that's coming? What does the evidence suggest, John? You and I aren't told what John's conclusion was, but three chapters later he was beheaded because he stood firm on the truth of what God had delivered. It sounds like John was convicted and convinced like nevermore that because of what he'd seen, that was the evidence that Jesus was the Christ and He was the Son of God. What about that scene developed before us in John 4.39? There the Lord had conversation with a Samaritan woman. Many things He told her, and she quickly appreciated the fact that He was not any normal human being. He told me things, she herself said, He told me things about the nature of my life. You may remember at verse number 39, she went back and told everybody in the city, told so many of the people. And as she did so, they were led to believe. The evidence that she shared was sufficient to lead in them the appreciation that this man to whom she had spoken was, in fact, no simple human being. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. Notice again how the evidence led her to that and also convicted others as well. The evidence here spiritually is very strong, wasn't it? Beyond that, why don't we consider these additional matters as well that of course directly come to your life and mine. The Christian life. It of course should well begin with verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 5. We walk by faith and not by sight. We trust in the fullness of that which this book says. It doesn't matter whether Stephen Hawking agrees to it or not. We hope he comes to appreciate the nature of it, and we hope that he comes to realize it. But we are fully convinced, aren't we, that this book does contain in every way, every element in truth. For after all, we know the God of heaven authored it. Second Peter 1 verses 20 and 21 pointed in language like this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As the Holy Spirit directed the writing of this book, we know that it doesn't rest on human intuition, and it doesn't rest on human understanding. Isn't it still remarkable that many of the things that are written in here, even those who wrote it at the time, did not fully understand it? Isn't that what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verses 7 and following? He spoke about the fact that angels look into this. They desired those Old Testament writers. They desired earnestly to look into the things of which they prophesied. But they did not live long enough to see it. They died before the Son of God, Jesus, was ever born. 
But did you ever notice in that same chapter it says that they themselves desired to look into it. They apparently didn't fully understand it at times themselves. But they faithfully wrote down what the Holy Spirit told them to write. And this book is true in every regard, isn't it? What an element in faith building. But beyond that text in 2 Corinthians 5, what about some other instances in which others in the New Testament use the power of reason based on Scripture? One of our favorites may well be that one contained in the book of Acts. I would call your attention to Acts 24. Paul, it says, did something very interesting as he preached. Remember, he himself at that time was in somewhat custody, shall we say. He, his life had been saved by Lysias. He was one who had been hauled before various tribunals in an attempt to figure out what it was he had done. When he finally appeared before Felix, in chapter number 24, the text is very clear in saying, Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and the judgment to come. Now here was a man, Paul. He was the one on trial. The person sitting in the judge's seat was Felix. And here Paul put him on trial. And he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and the judgment to come. And that word reason highlights the thought. He pleaded with the logical capabilities of Felix. Paul reasoned with him. May we never forget Felix trembled. Paul was rather successful in his reasoning ability, wasn't he? And may you and I, of course, desire by the power and blessing of God that we might be as reasonable and that we might be as successful as he was. Paul reasoned. But you'll notice he didn't just reason about creation and things like that. He reasoned of righteousness. That is to say, right living. And he reasoned of of temperance, namely self-control. And he reasoned of the eternal judgment. That must have been a great sermon to hear. But Paul reasoned of those things. What about more considerations? Namely, Jude verse 3. Here, near the end of the New Testament, the inspired writer Jude, as he first had in mind other ideas to share in 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 the message of the book, he quickly identifies the fact, I found it more needful. Notice the characteristic of what was more useful for them and beneficial. I found it more needful to urge you to contend earnestly for the faith, that was once for all time delivered to the saints. That verb contend means to work and fight on behalf of, to defend as appropriate. To defend something means that one is willing to stand in deference to it. One uses faculties and reasons and capability in light of defending her. To contend earnestly for the faith... Notice that this faith that you and I cherish so greatly is worthy of being defended and worthy, of course, of being contended for. Sounds like it's reasonable to believe, doesn't it? To that, we might well add the example of 1 Peter 3.15. As Peter, in the midst of that book, gave a great order to those of that day, and you and me as well, he said... But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that's within you with meekness and with fear. Now may we say that demands the reasonability of faith. In other words, you and I, by consideration and careful deduction, should be able to share with someone else who asks you, why do you go to church the way you do? 
Why do you believe? Why were you baptized? We should be able to share by virtue of the Word of God why we have done what we've done and why we worship the way we do. That's interesting, isn't it? The reasonability of faith. A final couple on that page takes us back to the Apostle Paul again in Acts 17.3. Here, as Paul preached in the city of Thessalonica, he had some powerful messages to share, of course, in his sermon, but the way in which the description is given is so very intriguing. The text very simply says, Paul opened and alleged. That means he opened, of course, the things of the Word of God, and he defended it. That is, he used clear-cut logic in defense of that which was the gospel and its message, the reasonability of faith. So far, we've seen a number of New Testament examples that touch that idea. One final one on that slide would take us perhaps to one we've already raised to in our mind, Philippians 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul said there, as he wrote to the church in Philippi, I am set for the defense of the gospel. He quickly highlighted that there were some who didn't preach it faithfully in the sense that they did it because they were convicted of it. He said there were some preaching it out of ulterior motives. But he quickly said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. That means Paul was ready any time to defend it with clear-cut approach and logic. We might notice that though time would fail us to look into it tonight, another famous individual in the book of Acts was also well equipped to do the same. Of course, I speak of Apollos. You might notice at some point how the description of him is so wonderful in that what he was capable of doing with the Scriptures. As we've looked at all these examples so far, maybe the bottom of that slide summarizes it so succinctly. It is reasonable to have faith. In fact, it seemingly, from the prescriptions we've noted, takes a great deal more, quote, faith, if you will, to not believe in this, to believe somehow that all these other things just occurred. But you might notice the integrity of how the Word of God touches the very nature of the mind of man. That's one subject I haven't had the time to develop tonight, but maybe for another time. If it is the case that God fashioned human beings, and He did, He created us, then He knows the way your mind and mine works better than anybody else. He knows the way we think. He knows what would appeal to our reason and our logic. And the Word of God does that. And Paul highlighted it in Romans 1 verse 17. You may remember the previous verse begins like this, but note the way it surrounds that topic of verse 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Note the double usage of the word faith. Faith develops more faith. The proper encouragement of faith will in fact develop a greater degree of it. No wonder the apostles besought the Master in, in Luke 17 and said, Increase our faith. I hope tonight as we've been reminded of the reasonability of faith, it does bring us to ask, What about your faith and mine? 
Does it need continual encouragement? Have you allowed it to slip due to negligence or apathy? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. If we want our faith to grow and we want our faith to develop and mature, a thorough consideration and a frequent one at that of this book will be the only way that will happen. Men will try to tear our faith down under the prompting of the devil, but we know that our faith is reasonable. And we wish to bequeath it to our children and those that we love. As we close this lesson tonight, that reasonability of faith leads to a mere statement of conclusion, a statement that summarizes some of the features that we've seen in this lesson. God, again, as we've highlighted, does know the working of the human mind. And He's delivered in His book that which addresses it. It's reasonable to have faith. If you have never begun that walk in faith, what better night could there be than this one? That faith, of course, is begun as you think about obeying that gospel initially. Believe in Jesus. Believe Him to be the Son of God. He did walk on this earth. This book attests to it and many others do as well. That same one, that Son of God said, you must repent. He said that in Luke, 13, Luke chapter 13, verse 3. He also declared that you must confess His name, Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. And He said, you must be baptized, Mark 16, verse 16. If you have taken care of that, have known what it was like to live reasonably in faith, but perhaps things have happened, situations in life have developed, Circumstances have come that have allowed you gradually over time to be such that your faith is not as strong as it used to be. You've allowed things to cause you to be separated from God. Maybe it's things that scientists have said. Maybe it's things that friends or co-workers have declared. Maybe tonight, though, you realize that you need to come back home and you need to come back to your first love and you need again to ground your faith on that strong rock spoken of in Matthew 7, verses 21 and following. If you need to do that tonight, we'd be delighted to pray for you to God for His strengthening of your faith through the Word, and we'd be happy to do it. If you would like to make a public statement on any of these matters or anything else that we could help you, Brother Jonathan's chosen a song of encouragement. And we're going to use this as an opportune time. And if you'd like to come, why not now? While together we stand and sing.